if you're a guy and you guys know who you are, there, <laughs> yes, you are. No, you're a dude. <laughs> if you're a guy or a dude, we invite you to be a bro this next Saturday morning, the 18th, at the Bro Breakfast. There's information inside of the announcement sheet for you. Um, if you need some more information, catch me, catch uh, David Welch, catch Richard Chow, uh, catch John Skipworth, and we'll give you a personal invite, give you all the information you need. Uh, we're going to talk uh, this morning about some ancient words. And before we do that, let's do as we always do to prepare a heart and mind for our study, and that is uh, to ask God to bless us through prayer to understand. Father, we're grateful for all of the ways that our life gets intersected by you, by your words, by your spirit. And there are times, Father, when we're just elated and we find ourselves standing in joy and standing in glory because of the greatness of your presence. And then there are times when, because we're rubbing shoulders with you, in this life and trying to, to walk as disciples, that we find ourselves convicted in ways that, uh, that motivate us to, to live a more rich and a more deeply embedded life in your kingdom. And this morning, as we think about the, the Christ, um, the prayers that Paul uttered up for the church and gave to us to instruct our minds what it's like and what we should be like when it comes to being your movement in this world. We pray for the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And we ask, Father, humbly, that you will bless us with this in order for us to be changed into courageous people, into courageous people, to your glory and the blessing of this community. And this we pray with all of our heart, in the name of Jesus, and everyone said. I don't know if there's anybody here this morning, maybe if you're under the age of 20, perhaps, who has not seen the movie Braveheart by Mel Gibson. It's based on the life of William Wallace, who lived in Scotland from about 1270, uh, was executed in 1305, during his life, Alexander III ruled Scotland until the day that he died. Uh, his next heir to the throne in Scotland was his granddaughter, a young girl by the name of Margaret. Uh, she was also known as the Maid of Norway. And in this passage, this, this little girl, uh, if you're from Scotland, they probably would have said this wee lass, you know, was making her way to Scotland when she became ill and she died. And there was no clear heir to the throne of Scotland. And so the clans uh, began to struggle with each other. Uh, the families began to struggle over who had the rightful uh, place on that throne. And in that intermediate area, and if you know anything about the story of William Wallace, uh, Edward I, also known as Longshanks, is a cruel man. He's, he's a brutally tough ruler, uh, steps into the void of no rule in Scotland and begins to rule sort of oppressively and begins to treat uh, all of the, the, the Scots um, uh, in, in horrible, terrible ways. And uh, William Wallace decides that he's going to lead a rebellion against that. And he's hugely successful, but he is eventually captured by the English 
And in the movie, at the end of the movie, there's a, de a depiction of the execution of Wallace. And it's at that moment, and it's a gruesome execution. You've seen the movie. It's actually a very gruesome movie. But the, the execution scene is particularly so. And as all of that begins to build, the viewer, like me and like those who have seen it, begin to ask the question, what would lead a guy to do what he did and his life end like that? Badly. Uh, in an execution. And you don't have to wait too long because uh, William Wallace, and again, it's fictionally based, lets us know what it is that propels him forward into this life that ends the way that it does, and he's lying there and he cries out, Freedom! Again, it's fictionalized, but there is a plaque that was placed at the, at the Tower of London, the place of his execution, that did record his words. And there in Latin, I'll give you the translation. He says, freedom is what is best. Sons never live life like slaves. So for that particular individual, for William Wallace... Behind the courage to do what he did and to live the way he lived was this value freedom that trumped everything else. Now this morning, I want to I talk about courage. And I think we want to begin with a working definition. It's not the greatest definition ever, but it's a working definition. And it's this. It's up here on the screen. Courage is not the absence of fear. A lot of courageous people will tell you that they felt a lot of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear, but comes from the presence of something else. The presence of a life-changing conviction. There is, is something of value, something that is dear, something that is precious, that stands behind the courage that diminishes the fear and the danger to the extent that through courage a person is able to act out on that conviction. Our word courage comes from a Latin word for heart, C-O-R. It's the word core, which through space and time becomes courage in the Old French. And then later it comes into Middle English as our word courage. Now how does the word courage work? Well, in the ancient world, um, you know, philosophers and others thought of, of humans being sort of divided into, you know, their actions being divided into three areas. In the head you had the computer, you had the database. And that's where all of the information, that's where all of the data is stored. And then you drop down to the viscera, or the abdominal area, and that's where all of the action comes from. In fact, we say this even today. We say that, wow, man, he did something great. It really took guts, you know, to do it. I mean, we get that. Well, in between the head, where there's the information, and the viscera, where there's the action, there's the heart. And it's the heart that is the seat of values. In the heart, you find the values, you find the things that are dear to us, the things that we hold dearest, are located there. And a lot of times we use that same kind of language even today. If, if somebody is, is facing something that, that is great and they overcome it, we say that they have the heart of a champion or they have a lot of heart. Someone who is courageous has something bigger and better and more beautiful in their heart that just trumps the fear, that dilutes the fear, that diminishes the fear to the place where they're able to act. And, and this is why even the most unlikely people, 
candidates for courage do not have a profile. They have a heart. And even the most unlikely people can demonstrate tremendous courage and surprise us all. There is something in that person's heart, in your heart, in my heart, that because of its value, it's worth fighting for. It's something even worth dying for. Now, out of all of the virtues that comprise the life of a disciple, one of the least that's talked about by preacher types like me is courage. And that's odd. Courage is all over the Bible. You go to the Old Testament. I mean, it's all over the Old Testament. You have Joshua, who's getting ready to lead the people as the new leader of the Jewish people into the Promised Land. And in that first chapter alone, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Says that four times. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 18. Be strong and be courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous because I am with you. And then David, think about the greatest, and if not the greatest, the most famous of all the Psalms, Psalm 23. David, at some point, is, is writing about going into the valley of the shadow of death, but I will not, what? Fear, because you're with me. Over in the New Testament, Paul tells the church in Philippi, I'm thinking about the fourth chapter, he tells that church in Philippi not to be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything because the Lord is near. It's all over the Bible. And when you begin to look at the writings of people that were observing the Christians during the, the second century into the first century, you, you find people being convicted and, and being moved and being startled by the courage of those early Christians. Claudius Galen, who uh, is Greek, is considered the father of modern medicine, in his writings, which were great, he, he makes six references to Christians. And in the sixth reference, the last reference that we have, he writes of them this way. They are fear, there's a fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them, that is the early Christians, every day. Now, out of all of the things that Christians, the people of God, God's people should be known for, they should be known as a courageous people. The problem is, is that sometimes we understand courageous as obnoxious. I'm not, not courageous in the sense of obnoxiously running down people or running over people. The kingdom of God courage is not being intolerant. It is not being hateful. It is, it is, it is not the courage to dismiss people uh, because they are not where we are spiritually. I'm talking about the courage to take seriously the challenge to live as salt and to live as light in this community, which will never be easy. It will never be simple. It will never be without challenge, not without protest, not without objection. Always will it be rigorous. Always it will be demanding. And that's why courage is needed. I'm talking about the courage to go into all of the world because Jesus said, Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. I'm talking about getting out onto the rocky waves because it is Jesus who bids us take his hand and get out of the boat. I'm talking about an unfreak ability to our faith because no one can snatch us out of his hand and there is nothing that separates us from the love of God. 
I'm talking about the courage to love enemies and pray for those who persecute us just like Jesus because we have been baptized with Christ and we have clothed ourselves with Christ. I'm talking about the courage to overcome evil with good because we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but it is He who is living in us. I'm talking about loving people courageously because God first loved us courageously. I'm talking about the courage to set apart Christ in our hearts and to be ready to speak the words of the gospel into the hearts of people who will mock our faith because they don't quite get it yet. The big idea about courage is this. At the core of our kingdom courage is the Christ and His cross. So how do you develop it? Well, Corey read for us just a couple of minutes ago this, this wonderful, awe-inspiring prayer that's at the beginning of the letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. There's another letter, that, or another prayer in that letter, the third chapter that I want to read to you right now, and it goes like this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, I want you to read this line in yellow with me together. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he continues to pray that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of, all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You, uh, let me stop right there at the comma. This is a little bit of an aside. You know, uh, there was a time in my life when uh, the, the thing that I feared in judgment was that you know, God was, was going to, to, uh, to open up the book and it would be all of the things that I had done. You know what my fear is now? And, and I use the word fear loosely. But it's to stand before God and He opens up the book of the things that I did and then He opens up this big book of what I could have done. Had I only trusted that power and prayed like that. More than we ask. More than we imagine. According to His power, not my power, that is at work. It is at work. It is an active work that is happening in us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Courage, according to Paul, and this is what he's praying about, Courage begins with a recognition of some eternal truths and a decision. The decision is, and the recognition is, I will live like Him because He dwells in me. I will live like Him because He dwells in me. At the heart of our faith is an event that has changed time, it has changed everything that we see, and it has changed everything that we can't see and everything that we can't even imagine. That event was the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You know, when you think about courage, you have to begin with the incarnation. He leaves a place of ultimate 
complete safety and comes to earth. He leaves a place that is the, the, the side of the Father, the triune God, the harmony, the love that the God the Father has for God the Son, the God the Spirit. All, all, he leaves that, that place that is clean for a place that is not so clean. A place that is safe is not so safe. He left everything in heaven, the harmony, the peace, the safety, the love of the triune God in order to live among us. He was the fulfillment of the law, meaning that he became the human we were meant to be. He taught the true meaning of God's word, and he got in trouble at times when he corrected where the humans had, had, had messed it up. He interacted with people who had absolutely nothing in common with him, even when he was criticized and ridiculed for it. He healed and he touched, and he brought a kingdom of God hope to people regardless of who they were. And then one night, right before he died, he was left alone in a moment of emotional pain by his closest friends. He was betrayed by another friend, ironically, with a kiss. He was roughly arrested. He was taken to a kangaroo court. He was lied about by witnesses who were not just getting their facts wrong, but had been bribed to lie against him. He was beaten without mercy, but with a lot of hate. He was unjustly convicted, given over to a foreign power in order to be executed. He was scourged, which means that the Roman soldiers were trying to literally, literally, literally skin him alive Stroke by stroke by stroke, lash. He was made fun of, and he was mocked. They spat on him. They played a game with his possessions. He was made to carry his cross through the streets, as beat up as he was. And then he was crucified. Crucifixion was an invention of some very cruel minds. It was invented to kill a man as painfully and as slowly as possible. And the really incredible thing, when you think about these series of events, you know, you go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, Jesus knew that this was what was waiting for him in Jerusalem that he was going to be killed, and he resolutely set his face towards the city. His disciples even knew that he was going to be killed. He'd been teaching them about it. Acts, uh, Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, other places. In John chapter 11, Thomas says, well, if he's going to go to Jerusalem, we might as well go and die with him. When he was arrested, he was not arrested on the lamb. Jesus, when he was arrested, was not trying to get out of Dodge. Luke 21 says that Jesus was teaching during that last week. He was teaching at the temple during the day and then spent each night on the Mount of Olives. The very next chapter says that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. It's as if Luke is trying to say Jesus was letting the authorities know where and when they could find him and arrest him. Jesus lived the most courageous life of love. 
Jesus lived the most courageous life of love, which included a death for him and life for us. We've said this many times before. You know, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. There was nothing made that was made without him. John just keeps driving that fact into our mind. He created, he created. What kind of power creates this? Beyond us. Even in the little stuff. You know, turning water into wine. Raising, you know, a dead person back to life. His power was enormous. So, what was it that kept him courageously dying on that cross? Not Roman soldiers. He had 10,000 angels at his disposal. My guess is they were ready to come. Wasn't the nails. Wasn't the nails. It wasn't the ease of a painless and sufferingless death. And it wasn't any kind of force or contract that kept Jesus on the cross. It was the loving conviction that humans are worth saving even though they are not worthy of that. Even if it means the ultimate sacrifice, which it did. And to everyone that says yes to Jesus, and yes to the cross, and yes to forgiveness, and yes to the resurrection, and yes to the kingdom of God, and yes to the gospel, and yes to being a disciple of Jesus, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. I'm not saying this is easy by any stretch of the imagination. It's not. It will be the most difficult and most courageous life you can ever imagine living. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, these words are recorded by Mark, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Over in Luke, he says it this way, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, what? Daily, and follow me. As disciples, we must develop the courage to say no to that face in the mirror every day. Because instinctually, we want our will over His will. I mean, when you think about it, how easy is it for you to argue yourself into not doing His will? It's absolutely easy. It's instinctually easy for us because we want our will over His will. We have to learn how to deny ourselves in order to pick up that cross and to follow Him. We have to say no to the face in the mirror that says, My will, not His, be done. Culturally, we struggle. We've elevated this idea of comfort zones to the place where they are over the good of sacrifice and service. There are things that do not get accomplished because we are not comfortable with it. Where 
biblically, theologically, the example of Jesus, the example of any of the, the, the disciples of Jesus, do we find them saying, Jesus, uh, why don't you take care of this? I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it. I don't want to. It's my comfort zone. I Don't get in my bubble. You find it nowhere. So we struggle with it instinctually. Culturally, we're not helped. But personally, personally, when we think about our life as a disciple, many times we want what benefits us and not what costs us. And that is not walking in the steps of Jesus. We walk in the steps of Jesus when His convictions become our convictions. When we see humans and we see the earth as He sees humans and the earth. We we, we begin to live courageous lives in the kingdom of God and live as salt and light in this world when we begin to value the things that Jesus values. You know, those early disciples, they believed that in love Jesus came and died and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. And they believed that what Jesus accomplished with that resurrection, detonated an explosion throughout all creation that changed everything for good and for the good of everything. And they courageously loved God. You know, there was a spear tip at the end of their confession. Those early disciples, as you know, many of them dying in the arena to the sport of those that that hated them. They were compelled and compelled and compelled and compelled and compelled to deny their faith, to deny their love for God. And some of them did, and it became a problem for those coming decades. What do you do with those that that saved their lives when there were so many that had given up their lives and would not deny their faith in God? But they courageously loved God to the point that it caught the attention of an empire. And they courageously loved people. You know, during those great plagues that swept across Europe, during those early centuries, one of the things that that they could not explain away, they could say all kinds of nasty things about the early disciples and their beliefs and the way they conducted themselves and their purity and all of that, but the one thing that they could not explain away that just puzzled all of their puzzlers was that when everybody else was fleeing the city during those great plagues, the Christians were the ones that were running into it to minister to people, to love people, to take care of people that were being abandoned, some of them dying by those same diseases. And they begin to see that, that here are these disciples who don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of means, they don't have a lot of food, they didn't have the resources, the social resources to do what they were doing. And that was during that period of time when, 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 when babies were being left out to die, I mean, there's just letter after letter after letter, writing after writing after writing that just, you know, there was this, this, this thinking that, you know, if it's a boy, let it live. But if it's a girl or if it was a, a male that was somehow deformed, you leave it out on the rocks and place in the wilderness and it's not murder because it's the fates that will take care of that baby. And the Christians, seeing humans being made in the image of God, began to step forward and to go to those places where those babies were being left And they would take them home and they would raise them as their own. They loved God courageously. 
And in loving God courageously, they loved people courageously. And they courageously served those people. They courageously spoke the words of the gospel and shared the news of the resurrection. They courageously lived kingdom of God lives. They courageously died for their faith in a way that changed the world even to this day. And part of the reason that this church, in 1907 Northeast Loop 410, exists in this city is because of the courage and the willingness in that courage to sacrifice and to make do with less in order to establish this church. It was the courage of the earlier disciples. So the question that I leave us this morning to ponder is this. Does my life of faith how my life of faith is exhibited in my words, my actions, my affections. Does my life of faith point to the price he paid? Alexander the Great uh, said, it's attributed to him at least, he said, I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. But I'm afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. That's who we are, folks. You know, you grow up with that idea of the sheep and cuddly and beautiful, and then you get to the place where you understand where sheep are not actually all that clean and cuddly and they're kind of obnoxious. And then you realize, oh, he's talking about us. And all of a sudden you begin to believe that you're a sheep. And you pray sheep prayers. What does a sheep pray for? Water, food, and safety. Although we're sheep, let us stop praying like sheep because the lion has taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It is His power, the lion, that is at work in the lives of the sheep to do more than we can ask or even imagine. Let us not fear stepping out of the fold and into those places where we might be uncomfortable and where we might find indifference. But never afraid because of the, the lion who has gone before us to defeat all of our enemies. We are sheep led by a lion. Let's stand and sing.